Chapter 7 of Workhouse Characters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lasanne Lavoie of Swansea, Illinois. Workhouse Characters by Margaret Nevinson. Chapter 7 Mary Mary Pity Women. A woman sat alone with folded hands in a dark, fireless room. There was little or no furniture to hold the dust, and one could see that the pitiful process known as putting away had been going on. For the cleanly scrubbed boards and polished grate showed the good housewife's struggle after decency. On a small table in the center of the room stood half a loaf of bread, a jug of water, and a cup of milk. The woman bore traces of good looks, but her face was gray and pinched with hunger and in her eyes was a smoldering fire of resentment and despair. Presently, the silence and gloom was broken by the entrance of a troop of children returning noisily from school. Their faces fell when they saw the scanty meal, and the youngest, a child of four or five, threw himself sobbing into his mother's arms. Oh, mother, I so hungry. We only had that bit of bread for dinner. Hush, dear. There is a little milk for you and Gladys. You can drink as far as the blue pattern, and the rest is for her. The mother kissed him and tried to dry his tears, but it is hard to hear one's children crying for food, and presently her fortitude gave way, and she began to sob too. The older children, frightened at her breakdown, clung round her, weeping. The room echoed like a torture chamber with sobs and wails. Presently, a knock sounded at the door and a stout, motherly woman entered. "'Good evening, Mrs. Blake. I've just looked in to know if you'd bring the children to have a cup of tea with me. I'm all alone, and I like a bit of company. Albert is always the boy for my money. I just opened a part of my homemade plum jam on purpose for him. There, my dear, have your cry out, and never mind me. Things have gone badly with you, I know.' and nothing clears the system so well as a good cry. You feel a slight better after, and able to face the world fair and square. Now, kiddies, leave mother to herself for a bit and come and help me set the tea things. Let's see. We shall be seven, all told. So, Lily, will you run upstairs to Mrs. Johnson, my compliments, and will she oblige with a cup and saucer, as we are such a big party? The landlady's kitchen was warm with a big fire and hermetically sealed against draughts. A big bed took up the greater part of the room, and this formed a luxurious divan for the poor children, to whom the hot tea and toast, the tinned lobster, and the homemade jam were nectar and ambrosia. Mrs. Blake had the place of honor by the fire, and when the meal was over, the children were advised to run out for a game in the street, and Mrs. Wells turned her chair round to the cheerful blaze and said soothingly, now, my dear, you look a bit better. Tell us all about it. Yes, you are quite right. We have to go into the workhouse. I went round to the Reverend Walker, and he advised me to go to the police station, and they told me there, as I and the children had better become a burden to the rates, as we are destitute, and they can start looking for Blake to make him pay the 18 shillings a week separation order. To think of me and my children having to go into the house, and me, first class in the scholarship examination. It breaks my heart to think of it. Yes, you've had a rough time, my dear. 
worse than the rest of us, and we all have our troubles. I remember when you came a twelve month ago to engage the room, and you said you was a widow. I passed the remark to Wells that evening. The lady in the top floor back ain't no widow, mark my words. There's a husband knocking about somewhere. On the faces of them as our widows, I have noticed a great peace, as if they were giving thanks that they are forever free from the worryings of men. And that look ain't on your face, my dear, not by a long chalk. Yes, he's alive, all right. I got a separation order from him a couple of years ago. He went off with a woman in the next street. And though he soon tired of her and came back again, I felt I could not live with him any longer. The very sight of him filled me with repulsion and loathing. Father and mother always warned me against him. Father told me he saw he wasn't any good. But then, I was only nineteen, and obstinate as girls in love always are, and I wouldn't be said. Poor father. I often wish I had listened to him, but I didn't. And I always think it was the death of him when I went home and told him what my married life was. He had been so proud of me doing so well in school and in all the examinations. Just at first, we were very happy after our marriage. He earned good money as a commercial traveler in the drapery business. We had a little house in Wellesden, and a piano and an Indian rubber plant between the curtains and the parlor, and a girl to help with the housework. And I, like a fool, worshipped the very ground he walked on. Then... After a time, he seemed to change. He came home less and took to going after women as if he were a boy of eighteen, instead of a married man getting on for forty. He gave me less and less money for the house and spent his weekends at the sea for the good of his health. One very hot summer, the children were pale and fretting, and I was just sick for a sight of the sea. But he said he could not afford to take us, not even for a day trip. Afterwards, I heard his Mrs. Bates was always with him. There was plenty of money for that. That summer it seemed as if it would never get cool again. And one evening in late September, my Martin was taken very queer. I begged my husband not to go away. I felt frightened somehow. But he said as some sea was necessary for his health, and that there was nothing the matter with the boy, only my fussing. That night Martin got worse and worse. Towards morning, a neighbor went for the doctor, but the child throttled and died in my arms before he came. I was all alone. I didn't even know my husband's address. And when I went with a little coffin all alone to the cemetery, it seemed as if I'd left my heart there in the grave with the boy. He was my eldest, and none of the others have been to me what he was. Later on, all the girls caught the diphtheria, but they got well again. Only Martin was taken. Blake seemed a bit ashamed when he got back. But he left Wellesden, some of the neighbors speaking out plain to him about Mrs. Bates, and he not to be found to follow his child's funeral. He tried to make it up with me, but I told him I was going to get a separation order, as I had taken a sort of repulsion against looking at him since Martin had died alone with me, and the magistrate made an order upon him for eighteen shillings a week, little enough out of the five or six pounds a week it he could earn, before he took to wine and women and Mrs. Bates. My little home and the piano were sold up, and I soon found eighteen shillings a week did not go far with poor hungry children to clothe and feed and rent beside. I tried to get back into my old profession, but I had been out of it too long. No one would look at me, and I could only get cooking and charring to do. Very exhausting work when you haven't been brought up to it. 
At first I got the money pretty regular, but lately it has been more and more uncertain. Some weeks only eight or ten shillings, and sometimes missing altogether. He owes me now a matter of twenty pounds or more, and last week I braced myself up and determined to do what I could to recover it. If it was only myself, I'd manage, but work as hard as I can. I, I can't keep the five of us, and it has about broke my heart lately to hear the children crying with hunger and cold. Mrs. Robbins, where I used to work, died a fortnight ago, and I shan't find anyone like her again. When one of the ladies goes, it is a job to get another. So many poor creatures are after the charring and cleaning. The Reverend Walker has been a good friend to me, but he says I ought to go into the house. A man ought to support his wife and children, he says, and I hope as they'll catch him, he says. Yes, I says, but it is awful to go into the house when we haven't done anything wrong, and my father an organist. Very cruel, Mrs. Blake, he says, but I see no other way. I will write to the guardians to ask if they will allow you out of relief, but I fear they will say you are too destitute. And now, Mrs. Wells, we had better be starting. I hope if they find him I shall be able to pay up the back rent. The table and chairs left, I hope, will keep you towards the payment of the debt. Thank you for all your kindness. All right, Mrs. Blake, don't you worry about that, my dear. Wells is in good work, thank God, and I don't miss a few a pence. I'm such a one for children, and your Albert is a beauty, he is. I've been right glad to give them a bite and sup now and again. I know children set out with empty stomachs aren't in a fit state to absorb learning. It leads to words and rows with the teachers and canings before the day's over. I can't bear to see people cross with children, and I do anything to save them the cane. Well, I hope, my dear, as they'll soon nail that beauty of yours, and that we shall see you back again. Perhaps I ought to tell you that a chap calling himself a sanitary inspector called this morning to say as five people mustn't sleep in the top back floor. I told him, as the room was let to a poor widow lady, in poor circumstances, and was he prepared to guarantee the rent of two rooms? That made him huffy. It wasn't his business, he said, but overcrowd was against his council's rules. And the old lady held up the document, upside down, and then consigned it to the flames. There will be no overcrowding tonight, said Mrs. Blake bitterly. The children were collected and scrubbed till their faces shone with friction and yellow soap, and then the little procession started to the workhouse. Mr. Wells, returned from work, announced his intention of giving his arm up the hill to Mrs. Blake, and the young man of the second floor volunteered his services to carry Albert, who was heavy and sleepy, and his contribution of a packet of peppermints cheered the journey greatly. When the cruel gates of the house closed on the weeping children, the two men walked home silently. Once, Wells swore, quietly, but forcibly, under his breath. You're right, mate, said the young man. This job has put me off my tea. I'll just turn into the king of Bohemia and drink till I forget them children's sobs. Note, I understand that under a separation order, the police have authority to search for the husband without forcing the family into the house. I called at the police station to inquire why this was not done, and was informed that the woman's destitution was so great that they feared the children might die of starvation before the man was brought to book.
End of chapter 7. Recording by Lisanne Lavoie.